early and make sure you get some sugar and, you know, you definitely want that caffeine because, you know, you just never know if the sermon's going to be a downer and you're going to need a little pick-me-up. And so today, actually, we are going to continue our series in the book of Daniel that we've called Life for Eternity and Life uh, in Exile. And so um, if you don't have one, uh, I'd love it if you guys would grab one of our discipleship guides. Um, It just kind of walks you where we're going to be. And today is going to be in chapter 5. We also have scripture journals uh, that have the book of Daniel, and so you can put some notes uh, in there. Uh, And then lastly, um, for uh, big kids and little kids alike, we got our coloring sheet this week. Um, Just kind of lets you uh, have a word search and kind of gives you some opportunity to engage with the sermon uh, at a different level. And so to catch you up in the story here in Daniel chapter 5, God's people um, the nation of Israel, uh, they have been defeated. They, they, their nation is, is essentially done, or at least it seems like it's done at that point. They've been brought into exile in the world superpower of Babylon. Uh, and in Babylon, some of the exiles from God's people actually got assimilated into Babylonian culture. They got trained up in Babylonian politics and worldview and religion. And, and actually, some of God's people, while staying faithful to the God of the Bible, actually found themselves promoted in uh, this evil, pagan, godless, or rather ungodly kingdom. And so over three or four chapters, we saw this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and we saw kind of his path of trying to um, place himself uh, ahead of and over human history. And every time he did, he's brought low, he's humbled, until finally in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar sends out this like royal decree to the whole known world about the God of the Bible being the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and praising him for how the God who created all things humbled Nebuchadnezzar and brought him to a place of dependence on God, of repentance from sin that ultimately became a path of restoration and actually even greater glory than he experienced before. And man, we just love a good redemption story. And, and, it, and I hope that as we, we looked at that last week, and if you go back to that chapter, that you're able to see wow, that, that God can and does save all types of people in all types of ways, all through his word uh, and through his Holy Spirit. And so today, um, as we've looked at aspects of God's mercy and aspects of God's power uh, and aspects of God's wisdom, today here in chapter 5, we're going to see that while God is gracious, and he is, and God is merciful, he is, that God is also holy. And God is also just. And that means that God brings justice to his people, but also has justice for his name. Particularly when there's been rejection. Particularly when when we've traded things that um, are good maybe, but less than, and made them God. And so we're going to see another path of pride and humility in this one that is, is, I'll I'll be frank, not quite as... um, 
as wrapped up tightly and nicely as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar is now gone and dead. He's, he's moved on, uh, rather, and um, uh, he's alive. We're fast-forwarding in history, probably another 20, 30 years from chapter 4. And here we are in um, Daniel chapter 5. Um, this is a big chapter, and so um, we're going to break it up into, um, I want to say, four sections. It'll be kind of front-heavy on the first one, and then the pace will pick up uh, throughout the rest of it. And so let's start in chapter 5, verses one through nine. I'll read it and we'll talk about it. Get to meet a new king here. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, or rather predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar was actually his grandfather, but uh, the word means predecessor, he had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Immediately, The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. The king called out loudly, bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to king the interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed. His lords were perplexed. Okay, Uh, if you don't know, this is where we get the phrase, the writing on the wall. Uh, It's a biblical reference from Daniel chapter 5 here. Before we get into what we're reading here, we have to do just a little bit of Babylonian history channel here. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign has ended. Um, for God's people, uh, even though there was this path of his redemption that's still highlighting the fact that God said Nebuchadnezzar's reign would end and another nation would come. And today we're going to see God fulfilling that promise. God can and does fulfill his promises. And so Babylon still remains at this moment. After Nebuchadnezzar, there was a succession of three kings after him, each of them with very short tenures until um, one of Nebuchadnezzar's offspring uh, named, um, let's see, um, Nabonidus, Nabonidus um, rose to power. He was likely um, killing everybody else who was in power at that time. And he was the last official king of Babylon. And you're like, well, what about Belshazzar? Well, so um, uh, Nabonidus was known as a great, um, in some regards, uh, divisive figure uh, because he had some very wonky, even for Babylonian standards, religious views. And so he moved the nation's capital from Babylon to a city named Taman on the southeast, and he placed his eldest son, Belshazzar, as kind of the vice king or or second in command uh, over the region of Babylon. 
So if you're God's people, uh, the nation of Israel, reading the book of Daniel, you would think of Belshazzar as your king. Kind of like, hey, we've got Governor Inslee and there's President Biden. Neither of those guys are kings. That's the end of that analogy, okay? Um, And so with that, um, he's the eldest son of Nabonidus, and he ruled for a decade over the city and over the region around the city. So he's, he's had a bit of a run. I mean, 10 years of rule, that's, that's quite a, a run. Uh, I'm coming up on 10 years here now as the lead pastor, and I'll tell you, like, a decade changes you a little bit, right? Uh, I think all of us, if we thought back one decade ago, we'd be like, some things have changed, and hopefully you've changed a bit too. Uh, and so here in this chapter, we kind of just kind of get thrown in the snapshot of this king very, very quickly in Babylonian history uh, and, and as well in the story of the Bible. And yet we see so much, even in these first nine verses, and certainly through the rest of this chapter, about this king's character, about his disposition, about his actions and attitudes and, and what he say, says so we get a real clear idea. And so that takes us into these verses here. And I'm sorry for the long lead up, but these verses here, one through nine, um, we're in this place where they're in the city. There's a big party thrown by a, a pagan king. And I think this time, um, uh, a year ago, we did the book of Esther, um, right? And kind of that same, similar type of deal. Here's a big royal party. He's brought in all of like the A-listers for like all of Babylon. They're all there. All the influencers are there. Everybody, it's this big, posh party, right? Everybody's live tweeting it as it's happening. Um, and and uh, this massive, massive party. And Just like his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, who tried to make a statue of gold to override God's story that said, no, no, it's going to go gold, silver, bronze, etc., in terms of humanity's kingdom. With that, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to say, no, no, I'm going to reign forever. Well, he's done. Either knowingly or not, Belshazzar is actually trying to mimic maybe even mock the end of the Bible that ends with a massive party thrown by the king of kings in a new heavens and new earth in the middle of a city with everybody around rejoicing at the work that King Jesus has done in our place. And so here he is getting everybody around together and saying, hey, all of you guys, come worship me. Come see the works that I have done. And what are the works that he's done? Well, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he built these amazing gardens. He, he um, you know, brought peace, you know, in some version of it to his kingdom for years and years and years. Um, Belshazzar in Babylon, what's his big, like, come look at my accomplishment? Binge drinking. That's what it is. It says right here, he brought everybody together and was like, hey, look at me throw down. Like, I got bottles and bottles. He's like, look at me. I can drink so much. And as a former fraternity rush chairman, okay, before us following Jesus, let me tell you, binge drinking is not a skill. It's just something that happens to people, and it never, ever, ever leads to good decisions, ever, right? So here he is, binge drinking in front of everybody. Everybody else is probably partying too. Come look at me, but there's this extra wrinkle to it that we don't really know unless you know your history. There's something happening outside the city. He's celebrating a victory. He's acting like there's peace when in fact there is no peace. 
Because actually for several years, the nation of Babylon has been invaded by and is, and is declining in their world influence. They are no longer the biggest economy. They are no longer the biggest world superpower. They are no longer the largest military. They're no longer the most grand, wealthy kingdom. In fact, they have been having a foreign invasion for years and years. And Belshazzar's dad, King Nebuchadnezzar, still trying to hold on to the last vestiges of Babylonian supremacy. He's been fighting outside the gates of Babylon for a couple years, and he's been losing to the Medo-Persians. And so I want you to think about the idea of this grand party. Everything's amazing, but you're really on the ballroom of the Titanic. And it's already hit the iceberg, and the water's already coming down. Or think about last year as we watched um, our troops leave uh, the city of Kabul in Afghanistan. And now imagine in the middle of the airport, somebody had honed out an area and was throwing a massive victory party pretending that everything was okay. And so what Belshazzar is doing in this chapter is he's leading a culture of people, the most influential people in the kingdom, not in, hey, guys, let's get together. We got to figure out what our next step is. How, how are we going to make Babylon great again? Like, what's that going to look like? He's like, no, 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 no. Let's just get everybody together. And let's get all the cultural elites together. And let's just deny reality. Let's just numb ourselves. Let's just pretend that everything's going great. Let's act like it's a victory party. It's actually a let's ignore defeat party. It's as REM would have said, it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. That's what's going on here. And at a certain point in the party, after he's had a few, right, he's got a little bit of liquid courage and he's thinking about, oh man, Babylon's not doing so great. You know what? I want to remember a time that Babylon was truly, truly amazing. I remember my grandfather telling me about how they overthrew the nation of Israel and Judah and how they went into their temple and their capital and their city and we took all of their holy, um, you know, kind of ornaments, all of their, their, their like um, royal goblets, and, like everything that was holy and sacred about the worship of their God. We took it we put it into our storehouses, and I, we were truly awesome then. I mean, gosh, everybody would be speaking Hebrew if it wasn't for us. We were the great, great liberators of that horrible little nation over there. And in the midst of that, he says, you know what? Let's remember that. Bring in all of the holy vessels from that temple, and let's drink from them. It's an act of defilement. It's an act of blasphemy. It, it's, it's akin to like when, when an English crew team like wins a race, they all drink from a boot for some reason. Don't ask me why. I'm super glad that we like won a war against them so that we're not, don't have to do that same thing, right? But like that's how they celebrate. This is the like, hey, let's, let's drink out of the big Stanley Cup trophy or something like that. Let's do that. Except there's this added wrinkle of just like, hey, let's just mock that God over there that we defeated, when actually he did, he did nothing, right? It was his grandfather that did it, and uh, we know like Nebuchadnezzar's story from the last couple of weeks, his grandfather repented and, and, and actually came to a place of humility and recognized that, that that's the most high God, not I'm the most high God or we're the best. And so in this moment, in this 
blasphemy of what they're doing, taking from the trophy case at the Babylonian frat party. They're saying, let's take God's stuff that's intended for worship and let's, mi- let's misuse it. And I've used the word blasphemy a couple times, and you know, in like a religious context, you're like, well, there's a certain word you don't want to say, right? But I think that's really a more robust definition of blasphemy. To actually take something that God meant for worship and misuse it. If you don't know, you, your body, your mind, your soul are made for worship. And when we misuse our body, our mind, don't care for our soul, we're defiling it. We're made for worship. You know, my, my family and I just went up to um, uh, Mount Baker on um, uh, Friday and just kind of enjoyed the beauty of God's creation. God made those mountains not for us to worship them, but for us to, to worship Him, to enjoy what He's given us. Yes, but also have it point to the fact that there is a Creator. There is someone who has given you purpose. And so we get to this point where he does this and he it starts to worship, it says, the gods of, of silver and gold and bronze. And you're like, well, where have I heard that before? Well, that takes us back to what? You know, chapter 2 in Daniel, that statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron. They're worshiping gods that correspond to humanity's kingdom rather than recognizing there's a God who reigns over all kingdoms. And so the people are all in it. He's leading this. Belshazzar's leading this for everyone involved. We don't say this often, but I think we need to be reminded. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. God is gracious and merciful. God is loving and kind. He's compassionate and tender. And he's firm and he's holy and he's just. We have to be able to hold all of those together to have a robust understanding of the character and nature of who God is. God will always have the last word. And rather than other parts in in Daniel where like somebody gets a dream and they process it for a while and just kind of slow jam it, like, you know, again, Nebuchadnezzar's story, man, decades it took that guy to get to a place of relying on God. Like, your story with God doesn't have to be an immediate, this is your moment, decide now or it's not going to go well for you. Like, God's story for your life sometimes may be very, very quick, and other times it might be really, really slow. But, but let's just be clear, God does speak, God does act, God does call people to, to worship Him for, for, yes, His glory, but, but for their joy. And so this moment happens where in the midst of the party, it's all going, they're drinking from the stuff from the temple, and then boom, you can hear the music stop. All of a sudden, it even says like vividly, behind a lampstand, so like it's nighttime, they probably couldn't see very well, so right in the reflection of the lampstand, this human hand emerges, and and the writing on the wall happens, and it says his face changes, he like loses all color, Like, like he might have sobered up real, real quick. It actually says his knees knocked, and when it says that, um, there, there's one of the phrases in here specifically about what happens to him, the, uh, his color, yeah, his thoughts alarmed him. When it says his limbs gave way, a more, uh, a different translation of that is that he became incontinent. That like, the guy is literally a hot, steaming mess. He's just like, I can't believe what I just saw. 
And before you think, well, okay, we've already heard he's drank a little bit. Maybe there's some other things he took and a little bit of hallucination. No, no. Everybody else at the party sees it too. And we'll see later that Daniel sees it as well. This is something that actually happened. And so sometimes God is subtle. Another time God's like, right here, eyes up here. I've got something for you right now. And I mean, I, I do believe this is God's grace to Belshazzar to be explicitly clear with the direction that he's going, like to a, give an immediate consequence, an immediate reaction to, hey, bro, you are tracking the wrong direction. He can't ignore it. God's got his attention. He's distressed. He, he brings in the wise men and he says, hey, any of you guys figure this out? I'm going to make you third place in this kingdom. Remember, his dad's the king. He's number two. So he's giving the highest honor he can. And yet, don't forget, we got enemies at the gates. So it's like, congratulations. Like, like, hey, if anybody on the Titanic right now can tell me like where the iceberg's at and what's going to happen next, you get to be the first mate of the Titanic. And all these people are like, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds great. That's what's going on. Like, actually, why don't you be the captain? Because if you're the captain, you go down with the ship, and I'm just going to head out this way. I'm going to see if I can't find a spot on, on the top of that, that floating cabinet that we all know that Leo could have floated on, right? All of us know. Okay. It's been a minute since you've seen Titanic. That's okay. It's an old movie. All of my references are 20 years old. Okay. Here we are. These guys get a chance to be promoted. And, and I mean, if you've been following along in Daniel, I think right now the, uh, the astrologers, the wise men, the Chaldeans, the, you know, the big ruler guys, um, they're like, what, 0 for 10 on getting anything right at this point? And so they're like, yeah, gosh, I'd love to be promoted. I'd love to be the first man of the Titanic. And yet they can't read it. They don't know what's going on. They couldn't do Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They couldn't figure this out. They've got a lot of motivation. But what I think is interesting about what Belshazzar is promising them, the fact that they even latch on to it is something that is amazing, is like, congratulations, you're promoted in a place that's going down. I think that's a lot of what our world does for us. It promises you purpose. It promises you prosperity. It promises you legacy, significance, value. Just follow us, do our thing, go the way of the world, build your own kingdom. When the reality is, just like this party, our world is drunk and our world is perishing. It's not what lasts to the end of the story. Yes, it's, it's valuable. I mean, we need to love people in this world. We need to recognize that this world's been given to us. Yes, to enjoy, but there's also sin that has come into our world. And, and, and sin um, happens, you know, even at a creation level, right, with things like earthquakes and all that type of stuff. It happens at the molecular level when our cells don't cooperate and cancer starts to grow and spread. Uh, and then it happens in our souls as well when a cancer of pride overwhelms us and doesn't help us to see our need for God and, and his salvation. And so the world is, tells you just be entertained to death. Be drugged and numbed out to the reality of God, of sin, of death, and we'll give you an abundant, frivolous life, even one that might go quickly. When God says, no, I've, I came in Jesus to give you life and give you life abundantly. 
to conquer sin, to conquer death, and to give you life for eternity. The world will always promise more than it can deliver. All right, that leads us to the next verses, okay? So the, the Chaldeans can't figure it out. Nothing's going right. But there's somebody that has some wisdom. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5. The queen, or queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father or predecessor, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father or predecessor, your predecessor the king, made him chief of the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. Okay, so party's raging, music's going, it's crazy town, uh, you know, we're blaspheming all over the place. All of a sudden, music stops, writing on the wall, bit of a buzzkill. You know what else is a buzzkill? Grandma showing up to the party. Right? You throw in a raging frat party, no one wants grandma to show up and say, hey, by the way, I've got this great guy that leads a Bible study here in town still. You should meet my pastor. He's awesome. Right? Just, just forget the party. Go, come meet Daniel. That's what's going on. This is the queen mother. Um, it's likely Nebuchadnezzar's wife, his grandma, um, bit of a buzzkill, but she's got a long-term perspective and a better memory than Belshazzar has. She saw firsthand Daniel's involvement in her husband's life and in the life of the kingdom. He says, you got a problem? This is, you got to get your right-hand man back. you got to get Daniel here in town. He's going to be the one that's going to take care of you. He's the one that like, is way better than all these guys. And as she does that, she talks about how there was light and understanding uh, in the days of his grandfather um, and all of the things that he did. She said, you can trust this guy. Because your grandfather made him chief of everything. There's, she uses terms like gods and spirits. So maybe her discipleship could, could use a little bit of like theological clarity. But what she's alluding to is the fact that Daniel was empowered by the Holy Spirit to give truth and grace in situations of great difficulty. He can even solve problems, she says. And so she's like, hey, quit asking the people at your party to tell you what's going on. Go get Daniel. So here we go. They go and get Daniel, verses 13 through 16. Pace picks up. 13 through 16. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, predecessor, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you, now the wise men, the enchanters, we've brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show me the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. 
Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So here's the funny thing, right? Clearly, Daniel was close. They could bring him in in a moment's notice, still in the town, still right there. And what's amazing is, is what we'll see here in a moment that, that uh, Belshazzar was actually told some of the things about Nebuchadnezzar's life. He was trained in that way. But like, wow, Daniel's kind of fallen out of favor. Daniel wasn't even invited to the party. Or maybe Daniel's like, you know what? I'm like 75 years old now. I'm going to dinner at, I'm going to dinner at four. I'm going to bed at seven. You guys can just play and do your whole thing. Either way, he's not present. He gets brought in. And, and, and there's this leader of generations before him, and yet Belshazzar, in the last 10 years, hasn't asked his advice once. Hasn't sought counsel, wisdom, coaching once. I'm 42 years old, and I'm constantly seeking wisdom, counsel, and coaching from pastors and leaders who have come before us and before me. With Belshazzar, it's like, man, you, bro, you, you had all this wisdom right here? Like you could have, you could have known how to, how to engage. And, and, and so as, as he does, even in this place of complete like unsettledness, he's still slamming Daniel on the way in. He doesn't say, hey, Daniel, I heard you're the guy that went toe to toe with my grandfather. And, and like he ended up giving you, uh, you know, making you vice chancellor over the whole deal. Or Daniel, I remember I heard stories about your friends who got thrown in a furnace and the presence of God showed up and then they came out and my grandfather made them governors over different regions. What does he call Daniel here? Does he call him a wise man? Does he call him a you know, head of you know, uh, the Chaldeans? Because that's what Daniel was for a time. He says, oh, you're one of those exiles of Judah. What's he saying? We own you just like I own this golden boot I just drank from. You're a slave to us. We're victorious over you. The height of pride and hubris at the moment that the enemy is still outside the gates. And he's the one asking for help. And so... They're about to be defeated, and yet even as prideful as he is, he can't deny that J Daniel has a relationship with God, that, that the Holy Spirit has given him wisdom. And, but the big idea, though, is he says, you're a problem solver. So he's not asking, hey, what does this message mean for me? How, how should my heart change? How should I reorient my mind? How should my actions and attitudes change? Instead, he's just like, hey, Daniel, I heard you can fix my problem. I'm trying to throw a party here. It's been a bit of a buzzkill. Grandma showed up too. Like we kind of hope she heads on back, right? Um, can, can, I just want to get the party started again. What do I have to do, pastor, to just get through this difficult time so I can kind of get back to doing my own thing? He doesn't want his heart to change. He doesn't want his relationships to get better. He doesn't want to have greater humility and, and try to see how God's working in and through the world and in through his life. Just fix my problem. Ease my conscience so I can get back to the party. We see here now in verses 17 through 28 how Daniel responds to all this. He says this. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. 
Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he was feeding grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he wills. And you, his son or successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of the house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you've been found weighted in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. There are times I wish I could preach like Daniel. I mean, Daniel, like I said, 70s, 80s, Daniel doesn't give a rip anymore. Like, he doesn't come in like, oh, king, live forever. How are you doing today? Like, I just, can I be your friend? I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm winsome and we got a good relationship. He's just like, save your stuff. You woke me up from my nap. Like, I'm here. I, I mean, I, I love it. Like, like on Tuesday night, we had uh, a men's taco night, and uh, I'm kind of talking for a few minutes to the guys at the church, and just kind of saying, hey, guys, I hope we can kind of grow uh, in, in our commitment uh, and, and our connection with one another. And then I'm like, hey, uh, uh, Al, you know, Al's in his 70s. Al, do you got anything to say to everybody? Al goes, y'all need to step up. I was like, yes, I love it. Just like, hey, we don't have time for this. We, 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 I, I need the message clear right now. And so Daniel goes in, and, and he almost like, like, a, like, like a preacher who's just, man, he's, he's throwing some like hellfire and brimstone. I mean, he's like not letting up at all. And, and he's saying, this is a sermon just for you, Belshazzar. J just for you. Yeah, there's things that apply to all of Babylon, but you're the one who's walking in pride. He recounts the whole, like, restoration story of his grandfather. He's like, hey, let me tell you about your grandfather. Let me remind you of how he was humbled by God, how it led to repentance, how it led to even greater glory. I knew Nebuchadnezzar, and you, sir, are no Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, 
you haven't accomplished anything. Like, your grandfather was feared. Your grandfather was revered. Your grandfather built great and, and accomplished amazing things. Congratulations. You can drink from a, from a glass boot. Not impressed. It's like, you've known all these things. You've been told all the truth about who God is. Like you've heard all the sermons, you went through Sunday school, you've done all the things, but still your parents' faith is, is not your own. Your grandparents' faith is not your own. This sermon today is for you. We are to own our own faith. It doesn't matter what family you grew up in or how often you've gone to church or if your spouse brought you or whatever that looks like. Like you need to have a place of humility and dependence before God where you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, where you're following Him as your King. And I want to tell you, it's not a path that leads to humiliation. It's a path that we're told leads to glory. Where we're actually given not a kingdom that fades, but an inheritance in a kingdom that lasts forever. And so he goes on and he says, hey, at a certain point, your sin, your pride, your blasphemy got so intense that God's like, I'm sending a hand to write a note to get your attention so you know this sermon's about you. And he tells them, Mene, there's a God who's in control of history. He's the author of all life, and he's determined the length of your days. Guys, this applies for all of us. All of us have a limited number of days on this earth. It doesn't feel that limited when you're younger. But as you get older and older, like, like sands through the hourglass, it just feels to get a little bit shorter here. Like, like you make that bend at 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm on the back half now. All of our days are numbered. For this guy, his time is up. His decade of rule is done. He says, all your days are numbered. Your kingdom's coming to an end. Then he says, tekel. This is actually an allusion to a courtroom. This actually, this whole kind of sermon that Daniel gives, it actually follows the framework of what a Hebrew trial would have looked like at this point. Here's all the evidence. Here's all the evidence. Here's what's happened. Here's, here's the whole narrative. Now, here's the conclusion. Here's the sentence. And so the verdict, if you will, in Tekel, you're in a courtroom of God, and when he looks at your life and my life and all of our lives, apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus in our place, he sees sin. Yes, sin that's done to us. And so, some of us have gone through brutal things. Other people have sinned against you. And the Bible says in the New Testament, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all found wanting before the holiness of God. And that, that doesn't have to lead us to fear. It should lead us to humility. And in Christ, it should lead us to gratitude. Last word, Perez. He says, your time is up. Your life is lacking. Here's the sentence. All that you cling to and take pride in and have accomplished the very breath of your life in the kingdom that you've overseen is going to be taken from you. Sin separates us from God. God is the source of life. So when you are separated from the source of life, the eventual consequence of that is, is death. And whatever we're trying to build here now, whatever you're trying to build in your individual life, it will end. 
And so he's given this sermon. And man, I love that we saw last week that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and, and led the praise of God. And this was a hard, hard sermon for Belshazzar to hear. It's what he needed to hear. Let's see how he responds and how we should respond as we close. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. The proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30. The very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Do you have people you're praying for? That you hope meet Jesus? That you hope have humility that leads to gratitude and honor and joy and walking with the Lord? People that you see on a path of pride? People that you see on a path of addiction? People that you see on a path of destruction? You just, you just want to see the Lord work in a mighty way. And you're hoping that maybe, maybe this is the Sunday or this is, this is the sermon I'll share out or this is the, this is the time that, that they'll be really brought low. And for Belshazzar, how much lower can you get than the enemies at the gates and your entire city's about to be overrun? How much clearer can God be for you that the writing is literally on the wall? And your response is like, Thanks for the message. I mean, I told you I'd give you some of the kingdom. Here you go. And you get nothing. I, mean, I, I want to be clear. I mean, God saves. God can do anything. The Holy Spirit's one who ultimately saves. We don't know what happened from the time he gave Daniel, <laughs> first mate on the Titanic, to when the gates finally fell. The city was finally overrun. And all the Medo-Persians says, where's the king? And they killed him. Maybe there was humility. Maybe he got saved. I feel like, I'm just saying, I feel like if that was the case, we'd hear, and Belshazzar humbled himself and fell before Daniel and said, what must I do to be saved? But we don't get that. We get that tension of even when the message is perfect, even when the truth is out there, that, that sometimes there's still a hardness of heart. But I think we're given that message to soften our hearts for those who don't know the Lord, but also they, if, it, if this is you, if you're like, I'm still processing, I'm still wrestling, like, I don't really know, excuse me, where I stand with God, you know, or maybe you're like, I've made my, my peace with God. Like, mm. I don't, think, I don't think God was like looking for you to like give him a pass. Are you at a place of reliance and humility? God, I need you. God, I have sinned and fallen short. And, and in this final act of a dead man, he, he gives Daniel the promised kingdom. It's a gesture, but it's not repentance. For Belshazzar, the party's over. He's killed that night. Judgment is swift. History actually records that Babylon was overrun by the Medo-Persians while a nighttime festival was happening in the capital. This happened. And we're given, the people of God, we're given this story 
So that when you read chapters 2 and, and other chapters where it says, yeah, yeah, God's going to save. God's going to get you through exile. God's going to end Babylon. Babylon's not forever. God's kingdom is forever. We get to see the actual resolve. Here is the end of Babylon. Right here. Next week will be chapter 6 and we'll see Daniel in the lion's den. And maybe most of us didn't even know. That wasn't a Babylonian king. Babylon's done. Babylon is done. God brought justice for his people. That Babylon's reign didn't rule forever. The God who judges, though, is also merciful and gracious. He shows us in Jesus that while we were yet sinners, while you were at the party, Christ died for you. While we were all found wanting in sin, in need, he took our punishment on the cross. So we have hope in Jesus. Not that we'll get to keep our kingdoms, but that he adds us into his eternal kingdom. In Christ, we can have our days numbered and be found lacking, and yet his mercy, we don't get justice. In his grace, we get an inheritance into the kingdom that never fades, that will never be overrun. I mean, the best part about the end of the Bible isn't just that we're at a party in a great city with good food and good drink, and the king's there, and everything's going awesome. It's that there's no enemy at the gates, because the last enemy, death, has been defeated. Satan is no more. There's no more sin. There's no more suffering. There's no more tears. There's no more cancer. There's no more divorce. There's nothing that robs us of life or joy. So while you're celebrating at the party, there's no shadow of like, yeah, but what about out there? It's just joy. It's just celebration. That we're going to be united with a kingdom that never ends. An inheritance granted and while Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, is outside the walls and he faces defeat and the kingdom is overrun, he loses to Darius the Mede. We have faith in a father who sent his son, who went outside the gates of a city where God placed all of our defeat on him, on the cross. So that when we come forward and we take communion where you remember his body broken for us in the bread his blood shed for us on the cross in the cup we're remembering that God has placed all of our defeat on Jesus at the cross all of our sin all of our pride has been paid for at that place outside the city gates so that we could experience victory you can repent of sin now and have victory over sin now. Not, not yet perfect, of course. But you can have hope for a greater future. You can have hope that your life is not what defines you, but Jesus' life in your place does. And while the son of a king was holed up in the palace saying, look at me while I party as the world around me is crumbling and perishing, and he hears a word of final judgment from God, he gets three words from God. The son of the king, God the son, Jesus Christ, he was in a throne room. He was in a place of comfort. He was in a place of safety and security. And he leaves that to empty himself, to come 
to earth, to live among us, to suffer on the cross in our place. Not saying like, look at me and how great I can drink wine, but instead, look at me suffering up on the cross. I'm going to drink the full cup of God's wrath for your sin. The only wine Jesus had on the cross was sour wine given to him by Roman soldiers. The bitter taste of the end. And so, as Jesus suffers and dies, he proclaims three words, not of judgment for us, but of grace and mercy. And he says, it is finished. The work's been done for you. The cost has been paid for you in Jesus. Our response is one of humility, gratitude, repentance. As we walk a path of glory and honor, even enduring in the midst of difficulty. With some, I, I hope, a little bit of joy even, knowing that when our hope is in Christ, the party's not over. The party's just beginning. And it lasts forever as we continue to trust Jesus. Let's pray.